Yeah, hello again. This is Fred, and this is Wilderness Walks. And we're not going for a walk today, but metaphorically, we are going to walk through some conversations with a good old friend of mine, somebody who has helped me in my way uh, dealing with um, some of the ways I've approached uh, how to deal with nature and how to work in a positive way for nature. And it's, a, and it's my good friend, Ralph. And Ralph has had uh, many many uh, meaningful life experiences, which um, I'm hoping you'll share some of that with us today. So, hey, Ralph, how are you doing? Well, thanks for w- having me in your home. Well, you're very welcome, Fred, and welcome to uh, the little little area here called Lakefield. Yeah. So, Ralph, Ralph, uh, I just was hoping to um, talk with you regarding um, your life and uh, some of your experiences. Uh, uh, what... What got you interested in nature? Why is it that you even have uh, any compassion for nature? Well, I was one of those big kids uh, living on a 19th century farm where uh, everything was pretty well done with animals and muscle of uh, humans. So uh, you were in an organic situation when you're living there. And uh, being a very curious young lad, I was always interested in everything that was happening around me. And even people, when I was very young, used to comment on how observant I was. Yeah. So I learned at a very early age to pay attention to the things that were going on around me, whether it was on the farm or whether it was in the community or whether it was in the, in the river valley that I happened to have at my back door. So uh, as a little kid, My friend Ross and I used to go from hikes down the little river valley and we used to capture frogs, we used to fish for trout, and uh, once in a while, if we got a couple of nice fish, we even at six or eight years old, start a fire and uh, cook them over the the fire and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, My mother never really worried about me very much until I was probably out too long, but... uh, I had more freedom than, I, I, I think I had more freedom than anybody else I knew. Right. And, and, you know, we'd go swimming by ourselves, non-supervised, skinny dipping all the time, enjoying the sun, enjoying the water, enjoying everything, you know. Yeah. I, I consider it a pretty privileged and fortunate existence, even though we were a very poor family living on a few acres and uh, basically a mixed farm with uh, three percher and horses and so forth. So that was the beginning of the things that I felt were, uh, were important to me is in, in the natural world as well as in the farming world. But something happened when I was about five or six years old. Um, I was observing my dad and, and, and another fellow drawing things and they were they were very what i call coded drawings they weren't anything fancy or like that they were just drawing sort of things that they like to draw and uh so i picked up uh, on that and i began drawing and by the time i was six or seven i could draw very well and then i got interested in painting and by the age of seven or eight, I was painting with oil paints. And, uh, and people began paying attention. Okay. Painting makes 
uh, uh, even more critical of the, of the observation. Yes. Because you're looking at sh light and shadow, you're looking at tone, you're looking at shape, you're looking at dark and light, and all those things that go into painting. So oil painting became a passion of mine. And I also furthered sort of this, I think, observation power. And uh, so uh, people are always asking me, well, what did you see today that was interesting? Yeah. You know? And uh, even my teacher, when I was in a little one-room school, used to say, what are you painting now? You know, bring in your painting, let me have a look at it. And my neighbor, Mrs. Faraday, used to say, please show me what you're doing. So this kind of social interaction even furthered the whole deal. Yeah, I find, I find it uh, really interesting that when I asked you that question, you reverted straight to your childhood. Oh, yes. And how, how that spark just came from the very beginning. And, oh, yes. And, uh, and uh, also the, the side of, um, of uh, being uh, in nature and exploring nature and then how it enhances your perceptions and how it brings you into the here and now with your surroundings in a way which really enriches your life. This is what I feel, and I see it in others who, who, who share these experiences. Yeah. One of the things I think that, that, that really I admired in the natural world was color. Okay. Color had a huge impact on me. And I'll never forget when I was five or six years old, we used to grow our own popcorn. Okay. And we had a row of popcorn in the, the corner uh, of, by our house. And there must have been, you know, 25 or 30 plants with two or three cobs on each. Well, I was picking a cob off, taking, going to take it into the house, and along came, flew in, this big male pheasant in the afternoon in September. Shiny, oh, yeah. fabulous color. Yeah. It just blew me away. Yeah. And that... You're five or something. That is just, just, just stunning, mm -hmm. absolutely stunning. Um, a year after that, I went fishing with my friend Ross when I was about six, uh, and we caught our we caught our first speckled trout. Oh yeah! And I said, "What an amazing looking fish!" Yeah. Oh my God! I thought that is absolutely gorgeous, and I went home and I drew one, and I painted it. Yeah. My dad said that is really a good painting. He loved it. I wish I had it today. Yeah, that would be a, anyway, a collector. But I did, I did a painting of the pheasant. I did a painting of the, uh, of the, uh, of the trout. And those sorts of things uh, resonate very, very deeply within oneself because you're seeing color, you're seeing that natural world, and you're seeing nature in its finest color. Yeah. So color has always been a great thing that I love. Yeah. Yeah. So as a teenager, um, I, I was given a fair amount of responsibility in my high school. Um, I ran the house leagues for, you know, the, the soccer and sports. the sports teams. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had a key to the gym. I had a key to the school. By the time I was in grade 11, I had a very good rapport with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, in grade 11, I was 16 years old and, and doing this. And, and the local uh, uh, Society for Recreation 
said, uh, the leader said to me, Mrs. Colley said, Ralph, she says, I want you to join our uh, day camp team this summer. This was in 1956, I think it was. Okay. And I said, what do I do? And she said, well, you just come to a couple of training sessions. And then we, we start, we start uh, in, down in Kempenfeld Bay. We have a camp there, and we have one up at Midhurst and so forth. And um, so I went into this uh, day camp uh, thinking, well, I'm just going to be a participant uh, leader here. And the th emphasis on these camps, by the way, right. was nature. And and uh, and and uh, nature crafts, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, music, those are the three things we we like to do in these camps, and uh, so uh, the day before we were to start the camp, down in Campbellville Bay, I got a call from Louise Colley, and she said, Ralph, she says, our director, he's 19 years old, is not able. To to come because he's got appendix uh, operation last night. Oh, you're going to be the director. <laughs> so with four staff, two volunteers, we had 65 kids. Oh wow! And you know, this is how I started out. Yeah, a lot of responsibility. We had a swim program, we had a crafts program, music program, nature program, and it was the most beautiful site you'd ever want to see down in Campbellville Bay next to Lake Simcoe. Oh yeah, it was a dream. So that was really the start of a lot of things for me. Sure. And, uh, and one of the things that I learned, and I took right through my teaching, was the value of informal education as opposed to formal. Yes. And I was trained as a teacher uh, to teach formal education, as you know, the curriculum and, right. and all the things that are, you're supposed to have finished by the end of the year for each grade, mm -hmm. which is fine. But I also introduced in my teaching career the whole idea of informality by taking kids out for walks uh, and taking them out for observation and so forth. Even as a, an 18-year-old teacher, yeah, I was doing that. Uh, that's I, I can vouch for the validity of that just based on my own life. <laughs> right. Anyway, so you know when I when I moved into the big city of North York as a teacher. Because uh, I was teaching in rural schools up to that point, one in Capriol and one in Wasega Beach. And uh, I had, uh, you know, typical rural school training, uh, which was eight grades, about 32 kids in each, each school. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I, I had a great time with, with, my, with my teaching of the eight grades. And, uh, and then, then I had to go to teacher's college. And... Uh, after I got a teacher's college, I went to the, you know, the big, the big formal school board, yeah, where I was teaching, you know, a class, right. And even there, I introduced the, because we had the Humber River Valley right next to Melody Road Public School in North York, right. And I'd say to the principal, "Is it okay if I take the kids down to the Humber Valley to do some nature walk and and do some things like that?" And he says, "Take Mrs. So and So. She's a volunteer. She likes to be with you." Take her with you, and we'll be this fine. So we used to do that, mm -hmm. right, right close to the school. Kids loved it, and then we'd come back and uh, we'd 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 talk about the experience, what we saw, and some of the things there. And one of the one of the times I went there with these children, 
was a, uh, a, a, a big sewer pipe coming out of the side of the hill. Oh, yeah. And the stuff coming out was awful. Yeah. And the kid says, is this allowed? Right. And I said, what do you mean? Well, this shouldn't be. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, they said, what do you think we could do about it? I said, well, I said, let's get in touch with the alderman for the area. Very good. So the alderman came in and the kids talked about the problem they saw of putting all this uh, very bad looking smelly stuff in the Humber River. Yeah. And uh, he, he was dumbfounded by their questioning. And that started more of a, what I call a call to action. And so he brought in next, next week, he brought in the city engineer in the area oh, who, <laughs> who, who was kind of embarrassed. Yeah, the kids got him. And, and he explained to the children, uh, we've got a situation here that's very unfortunate in the building of North York. We've got sewer pipes that, that join in when, when their capacity is reached right into the, right into the uh, overflow pipe down into the river there. Yeah. And he says, it's very unfortunate. This is 1950, 60, 1961. Okay. Okay? Yeah. It's quite a long time ago. Yes, it is. These children were not happy with the engineer's report. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that, that group went on and in, in, they stimulated me to think about, okay, uh, what are, the, what are some of the other things we could do here to test the water? We didn't have any fancy equipment, but uh, I said to myself, I think a sensory kind of test would probably work. So I got uh, some, some coffee filters, uh, I got uh, some jars and so forth, and we went down and collected the water from the Hunger River. Okay. And they strained it through the coffee filter, looking at residues, Yes. They sniffed the, 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 the water. They looked at in the light, you know, and so forth. Uh-huh. And they couldn't, couldn't tell whether there's any bacteria, but there was probably E. coli and everything else in there, which sure. I never even thought of. Yeah. But anyway, we had the guy from the Water Resources Commission come over and talk to the children. Because it was right next, it was right across the 401. Okay. <laughs> And he was dumbfounded with the kids, you know, what they were interested in. So this is what, this was how I started with this whole call to action. You know, it's it's uh, it is something when you. Uh, this is something else I've experienced with some of the other people I've interviewed in terms of how um, it started a lot with the youth, like an interaction, you know, uh, taking the kids into nature, and without any prompting, how they would be totally indignant to see sewage going into the river you don't and uh and uh and then to introduce the person in power to the children and let them tell them face to face what is actually in fact happening and and why that's okay or or not okay and i think that's uh that's a really brilliant stroke on your behalf yeah. to have done that well they these children wrote the mayor they wrote the mayor. Yeah. Yeah. They told him they were very unhappy that they couldn't swim in the Humber River because of all the sewage. And uh, they got a good, it's okay. Uh, they got a good response from the mayor promising something. But you know what? 
they're still working on those crossovers yeah. in North York today. They're mm-hmm. still working on those crossover that those sewage things when there's an overflow go right into the storm sewer and right into the creek and rivers. It's and still then, happening and today. Then ultimately, the lake and the lake goes into Lake Ontario. Yeah, and then down to the St. Lawrence. Of course, but uh, the damage is done uh, with fish populations, frogs, other things at the source. Yeah. Like, there used to be trout in the Humber River. Right, yeah. No trout. Uh, There might be some today because I think they're doing better cleaning up the thing. But uh, back in my day, it was uh, pretty well just a green slime. Mm -hmm. So um, those those calls to action were, and I went on to teach bright kids. We had a gifted program, and I entered that program about 1966 or something. And uh, these children were segregated as, as bright children. Okay. And I was in charge. Yeah. And the operation in my classroom was, uh, was uh, in the parliamentary system. Uh, one child was the uh, Speaker of the House. Oh, yeah. And we, had, we didn't have parties so much, but we had procedures that would imitate a parliament. And I was the facilitator. Uh, we would go... We would go through the normal curriculum of the school, of the province, but these kids would be finishing, would finish that curriculum probably in two months or so. Okay, yeah. And we would have then to uh, augment their education. And one of the, one, one, of the two, one or two of the things we did was, they, uh, we, they could choose two projects for the year, each. And they could be anything they wanted whether it be the Napoleonic Wars or uh, how are you going to get to space or whatever. You could, you could choose whatever you wanted to do. So those were research projects. Yes. So the children uh, were very involved with the library and the local library down the road, okay. they, research-wise. And uh, the librarians got to know these kids really well. Mm-hmm. We took unbelievable trips, really fantastic trips. And one of the groups wanted to do, uh, when we had the aldermen in, uh, we had another, they had another reason for the aldermen to come in, and the alderman was taken aback by the, by the questioning he received. Yeah. You know, and so we went to Queen's Park, you know. Yeah. We went to City Hall down in Toronto, met the mayor and qu- questioned him and so forth. <laughs> we went to, um, we went to a... Uh, uh, art gallery of interior where they had a special thing on cities today and they went through that uh, they the children actually got to know dr pearson i think his name was who was the head of the rom the rom mm-hmm. he when he saw them coming in the door he said what are you do, what are you interested in today ralph and i would say oh they're interested in indigenous people he says come on down we went down to the research section of the the ROM, where there'd be specimens and people be working and all this sort of thing. Those kids went in there and talked to the people, scraping, you know, things uh, off of uh, old, old artifacts and so forth, mm-hmm. and numbering them and classifying them and talking about their age and what their functions were. These guys were right in there. I mean, uh, I mean, so even at a more recent period in history, I'm just saying maybe 15 years ago or so, I can recall you doing similar things 
uh, with some uh, environmental activism here in the political scene with locally on the lake environment where you live, if I have this right, I remember you inviting the politicians to come in and speak to your group and then you guys could kind of evaluate them, right. if I have this correct, I'm That's not sure. Right. And uh, so, so you've continued to kind of act in that way mm -hmm. throughout the course of your life. Yeah. Well, I'm just realizing that now. You're, you know, uh, one of the things, one of the things you're talking about is we have an election every four years here. Mm -hmm. And about 25 years ago, um, I be, you know, I was very involved with the Lake, right? And regionally, I was very involved with a lot of things. So but one of the things that I felt was I wanted to know what values these people held relation to the lakes because the lakes here are basically what makes the whole area tick in the Kawarthas. That's right. The, you know, the, the building programs and the, uh, so forth. Um, so, so as a, per, a person, and, and I, was with, I was with another two or three groups, the Cottage Association, the North Kawartha Lakes Association, and so on. So I started this thing whereby we would interview all the candidates for the townships surrounding the lakes here. I remember that, and I was impressed by that at the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, that went on until this year. Okay. When I was incapacitated, I couldn't do it. Um, so uh, that didn't happen this year in the same same way. But up until that point, we would interview all the candidates. We would have a recorder uh, who would write down the answers to the questions, and we would summarize those. So we, I worked with teams in three different townships, and we would uh, put, publish those in local papers, those answers of those councillors, wow, answers great. in the local paper. And it give, gave people some idea what these people stood for. Because in local politics, very often people are not even, they don't even know what they're, what they're voting for. That's right, it's so true. Right. So it's sort of, and, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's what we did. And it was, and it was very effective. And two, we, we had a 99.9 participation in the people in those, in those interviews. Hardly anybody ever refused to... Speaking of the politicians? Speaking as a politician. Right. They always wanted to be interviewed. And how, how did you ever find any of them a little flat-footed on some of the questions? There were, some of them were downright out, out to lunch. Yeah. Out, oh, yeah. yeah. And some of, them, uh, some of them said, oh, the lake will take care of itself. Yeah. Uh, that's not the answer we were looking for. Right. Yeah, so it's great to have that response and to have it illuminate your own perception of who you're voting for. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So uh, we're, we were interested in maybe not, not putting, uh, not hard-edged to this whole idea. Right. We were interested in what people valued and in a, in a personal way. Yeah. And if they valued uh, the lake and its health, and the water, as a as a uh, a show of health in the Lat Lake, th that would show up in those interviews. Yeah, yeah. So, that that part of it's that's gone now. I can't do that anymore. But the model is there for anybody else who wants to do it. Right. So, um, 
I guess she was. I guess I'm. I'm saying that you know, in my life, I've tried to be an activist. Yeah. Uh, we we started back in the mid '90s with a couple of people testing the waters of Stony Lake, mm-hmm. and that morphed into eleven lakes associations doing that, mm-hmm. and now all the Kawartha's are in that. And it's a large organization called the Kawartha Lake Stewards, mm-hmm. and they're doing scientific research with, uh, with top-notch scientists mm-hmm. and understanding what's going on in the lake. So we're not just sitting back and saying, you should do yeah, this in your own backyard. Yeah. We're saying, here's what we're doing, and we would like your support. Yeah. So that has led a lot of credibility to the lake, lake uh, activism. Yeah, I found that um, like doing the the actual physical work and getting organized to doing the ecosystem monitoring, some mm-hmm. of the ecosystem monitoring mm-hmm. side, and and actually gaining control of an independent database mm-hmm. um, is is a really valuable tool. Of course, it is, uh, and not to rely on um, the ephemeral nature of government programs. No, uh, it's really important to have a long term. Uh, perspective obviously on the ecosystem health of your region any region for that matter but within your region this I learned a lot uh, during my time in fact I was involved with some of the early lake monitoring and water quality stuff where I actually physically did the mm-hmm. water uh, quality uh, sampling into the five lakes some of the right. first ones but but um, I think it's really important to note uh, how important it is I'm picking up on what you said about taking charge Mm-hmm. and not asking for someone else to do it. Right. At a certain level, um, you really simply have to do that. And that's where the activism does come in, and that's where community-based activism and collaboration is a really valuable valuable uh, tool for communities. Well, one of the things I found, Fred, was if you're passionate about that, yeah, and you express that passion in real way, and you put your money where your mouth is, yes, your credibility is, it goes up. Absolutely. And the politicians start paying attention. Mm-hmm. Other people in the community start paying attention. Yes. And I believe that we are all in these communities, like we're in this lake community. I believe that, that uh, the, the fate of the world really depends on communities working well together. Absolutely. And taking care of each other and taking care of the earth. And if we can't really learn to do that, uh, I'm afraid we might go the way of the dodo. Yeah. You know? And it's, an, it's interesting, too, how you, when you were um, talking about evaluating, just for instance, the, uh, those politicians, how really what you were looking for uh, was their, their values regarding mm-hmm. the ecological health of the region, in particular yeah. the water yeah. and the surrounding landscape. Right. Well, that whole thing at Walkerton was a sham for many people because here we had, you know, people asleep at the switch, basically. I remember that, yeah. And the tragedy there was resonated throughout the world. Yeah. And you just can't leave it up to a couple of technicians to make sure that the job gets done because you have to have better monitoring systems than they had. Yeah. And... I don't know how many deaths there were, but there were four or five or six or seven deaths, but a lot of people got sick. And then there are people who are sick today yeah. because of that issue. Yeah. And E. coli is a bugger. It, it really is. It, it just, it really is 
uh, something that human beings, uh, you know, will get very sick on. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, going back to a call to action, one of the things uh, when I took over uh, the Forest Valley Outdoor Education Center in North York, the the valley itself was was there were some big areas that I noticed, and I walked down the river valley where there was all this subsoil just dumped in the edge of the of the ravine. Okay. And I learned from neighbors that developers sort of did it at night, mm-hmm. and they would put like dump truck loads of subsoil with with pieces of of concrete and, and metal and so forth in it. And they just dump it over the edge of the valley wall. And it was a, a brown mess. Wow. Right? Yeah. So I said to myself, what am I going to do here? Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I talked to a guy who was a professor at uh, York University. And he had, he had, a, he had a group of uh, master students that were, were looking at ecological health, you know? Uh-huh. And I had, and I said to him, I said, I gotta get somebody interested in knowing what to do here. So I brought this young guy down and showed him, and he says, Well, Ralph, he said, what would you like to see happen? Well, I said, I'd like to have a program where we'd have kids that would go out with uh, composted chips and 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 so forth and cover that land, that brown land, and then we would seed it with wildflowers and shrubs. Yeah. Well, he said, Do it. Yeah. So I said, great Lord. So I called a, um, a company that I knew that had a forestry operation in, in North York, and they were happy to dump chips. Yeah. And so we organized these big composting things in, in the valley there, where we would, uh, after a year or so, we would have pretty good chips. Yeah. And so we'd get kids with, with uh, these big plastic buckets and and, and stuff, and we would go out and spread that over the land, and then after it got settled, we would, on a, on a nice day, we'd go out and seed it with, with wildflower seeds, and then we'd have <laughs> shrub planting and maybe odd tree. Yeah. You know, I could show you downstairs a picture of me overlooking this valley. I'd love after, to see. Oh, after, uh, after 15 years. What a great picture to have. And, and, yeah. it's beautiful. <laughs> that old brown field turned into a beautiful place where there are birds and insects and animals, butterflies. butterflies. It it the recovery is surprisingly good. Yeah. So that program went on for about fifteen years. Is that right? Yeah. And and I still think today where I'm I don't I don't I haven't been back there for fifteen years, but I think the program still goes on as we speak. Because the, the impact of young people uh, running in the sugar bush or running along the edge of the stream and so forth is all very well, but there's an impact no less on, on the land. Sure. So to reduce that impact, I encourage uh, the, the placing of uh, uh, humus and other things on the soil there. Yeah, wow, that's a so, uh, great legacy. Yeah, so that led to another thing. Okay. Um, because because uh, the, uh, the, the, the we had to order trees and shrubs and so forth, and I got to know the people up at Orono, okay. oh, yeah. who grow the, the shrubs and trees. I also was working, I I, I volunteered for MNR for their educational programs for over thirty years, 
And I had ins with the various people in the Conservation Authority as well as in uh, the, the MNR, Minister of Natural Resources. And they just gave me whatever I wanted. Beautiful. They said, for you, you're doing this with children, go for it. So on a given date, we would go and pick up a hundred maple trees, a hundred ash trees, uh, so forth and so on, and all these other shrubs and so forth. And then we'd organize kids yeah. to go in, out into either their schoolyards or into valley lands or whatever, parks yeah. that we would organize. And this morphed into a whole tree planting program for Metro. Oh, that is so awesome. I had 13 boards, Fred. I had 13 boards involved in tree planting, shrub planting. 13 boards? 13 boards. In, in, in so a, what does that mean, really? Like well, the boards of, of education, like all the Toronto <clears throat> board, the York Region board, the Peel board, all those other boards. Oh, yeah. That's huge. I, I was organizing all those boards to tree plant, shrub plant, whatever. And in Metro, I was known as Mr. Trees. <laughs> and I had a call from Peterson, who was the premier. And he said, uh, I understand you've done pretty pretty much a lot of work here with the tree planting. I see. Yes. He said, well, he said, I would like you to come to Queen's Park uh, with some children and plant two big trees for us in Queen's Park lawn. Okay. And he said, we want to honor you with this day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah. So uh, those, those, uh, those trees are nice big oaks. They're huge today. Uh, that's a long time ago. But um, that's how calls to action get noticed when you do a lot of things for a lot of people like that. But in the, yeah, so but the thing is, it's a, it's a win-win for everything I'm listening to. And this is something I've recognized in a few others as well, is the, um, the first of all, the leadership yeah. that's being provided by you, but then also the uh, willing support of all the youth yeah. that really want to get involved because they really actually care about the earth, it seems yeah. like it's a natural thing till the scar tissue comes later in life. Yeah. Sometimes you get, you, it goes away a little bit, it's harder. But when you have the youth, it's really hard uh, um, for others to ignore this upswell of activity and concern by the youth. Yeah. And uh, it's a great, it's just a great well, way the, to the, engage. The biggest problem I see today is the, uh, is the screen. Is the, the screen. It is the little screen. Oh, yeah, the or digital the TV screen. screen. Yeah, or right. Not so much the TV, but the screen. Yeah. And uh, I, the last five or six years, it really has caught my attention that we are substituting real experiences yes. with, with, with manufactured and, and edited experiences. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> and it, it is a concern that I have. Yeah, big one. A big one. Yeah. And that is the reason why we support camping in the province. Right. And we have a local camp here that Carol and I are involved in. We support, you know, that camp and its efforts to have children uh, go into the, because they have a wonderful nature program there. Yes. Camp Kawartha. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it is really, a, a, you know, an ideal uh, camp to send children to for nature education. I can, I can remember just one little thing uh, yeah. uh, regarding Camp Kawartha, and just from my own personal experience, uh, Kathy, my wife Kathy, she used to teach there, 
That's true. Uh, way back when and helped develop some curriculum there early on. And uh, when Emily was in her belly, mm-hmm. <laughs> so she'd be leading all these kids through the fields at Camp Kawartha. And just one particular experience, and this is the kind of thing that doesn't always occur for a lot of kids, is she would simply spread them out in the fields and lay back in the tall grass and stare at the clouds and look at the cloud formations and have the kids quietly observing and not speaking. Mm-hmm. And so the kids could fall into their own world and uh, watch the clouds floating overhead and listen to the birds in the trees. And she was doing that one time and she was probably about, uh, I would say, eight months pregnant mm-hmm. wearing these big coveralls with all the... <laughs> <laughs> where, and I remember she had poison ivy too at that time. Whoa. Yeah. Anyways, uh, it was quite the ordeal. But anyways, beyond that, she was laying in the tall grass and uh, with all these little kids, and they're all silent, and they're all spread out in the tall grass. And all of a sudden, it just so happened that they were laying in a rabbit warren. All these bunnies came out. All these bunnies started coming out, and the kids could stick their heads above the grass, and they remained silent, (laughs) and they observed, like, all these bunnies coming out. And the bunnies, these little rabbits started playing with each other My and God. they're running around and they're jumping and they're, they God. do these things called binking or whatever. Yeah, they, yeah, they kick yeah. their legs off to the yeah. side and they, yeah. and, and, and then the kids could see that in fact, yeah. there's this, this little community of rabbits and they're socializing. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it wasn't until they got up or the first kids started making noise that they all settled like down scattered, again, yeah. but they all had this opportunity. And, right. and I think that's one of the things that, um, I always find is that when you're in the forest, or anywhere in nature, if you can simply calm, quiet your mind, and and just uh, and just just quiet your mind and be and be calm, focus on your breath, and just and and and, and start observing around without. I always call it the child's mind. Yeah, Try to enter yeah. that child's mind where it's not too cluttered. Then then um, nature itself seems to receive you in a much better light, <laughs> and inc- that includes the trees. And the grasses and all of the birds and yeah. everything, they'll, they'll come and land upon your head. Well, I'm going to tell you a little experience I had with the same kind of thing. Uh, the, the teacher had a grade, I think grade one or two class, they're six or seven year olds, and she wanted to observe birds. Yes. And I took them out to a spot that I knew there was on the edge of the woods where I knew birds were uh, nesting as well as uh, feeding. And I did the same thing. Had the kids all lie down. Yeah. And I said, okay, we're just going to quiet, quietly listen. And uh, once in a while I'll talk, I'll say, now you listen to that note. Yeah. That's, and then I'll tell them what the name of the bird is. Right. right. So we were there for about, oh, seven or eight minutes. And uh, we could hear, you know, the robins. We could hear some vireos. We can hear some other birds. And, <laughs> and, this little one little boy, I could see he was getting restless. Yes. And uh, I said to him, is there a problem? He said, sir, are we just going to lie here all day and look at birds? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, no. I said, well, we'll be doing other things as well. And then we all got up. And as we left, one little girl came up and she took my hand and she looked at me and she says, that David is always a disturber in this class. <laughs> uh, well, but you know that's the sort of thing that 
you know, some kids can take and some kids can't. Sure, but even with it's, it's even I think it's a lot more difficult for adults oh, because because yeah. uh, part of the work I do now is I bring I bring adults into nature and try mm -hmm. to help them just mm -hmm. perceive nature, and uh, it, what I'm learning is that reality is different for all people and it's kind of a relational to their experiences, and a lot of times we draw. Um, our perceptions uh, are, are actually navigated a bit by our early life experiences. So the ones that, it's always fascinating to me, I quite often find when I ask people what brought them into nature, they always instantly revert to their childhood mm -hmm. and, uh, and the early experiences that they've had. Not mm -hmm. everyone, mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of times. And so uh, it goes back to that screen time that you're talking about now in today's mm -hmm. world where um, those experiences uh, kind of get short-circuited right. and, uh, and derailed. Yeah. And, so, uh, and so as children um, grow into adults and having missed those opportunities, um, it's difficult to retrieve or even understand the true value of those experiences. Right. And that's why I think, um, that's one of the reasons I really applaud your life's work is because of um, that relationship that you've had in education, mm -hmm. uh, not only with children, but also engaging with adults in the real world yep. and, uh, and staying on task uh, with the values that you hold, both of us hold dear. One of the things that happened on Stony Lake when I first came up here uh, as a cottager and on the lake, it's a long time ago now, but one of the, it was basically I saw people basically treating the treating the lake as a surface. Yeah, they really didn't have. I, I perceived anyway. They didn't have much more than what can the lake give me attitudes. Right. And they would use it for fishing. They would use it for swimming. They would use it for boating and water skiing and all that sort of thing. There was other things too that were. It was softer than that and slower than that, like sailing and canoeing and so on. And we had a great canoeing uh, group here in, in Peterborough area. Absolutely. Anyway, um, so I, 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 think, I thought about that, you know, and I said, what could we do? And then there, I met a guy by the name of Don Elliott. Don Elliott, yes. And Don started uh, nature walks for uh, cottagers on Stony Lake. Yes. And I joined the group one day. Uh, with Carol, and as we walked, Don was high on focus on trees. But I, I said, Don, do you mind if I interject a little bit more about the tree and this environment here? Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, expound on the, the why the tree grew here and all that sort of thing. And he says afterwards, he said to me in that day, he said, I really appreciate your 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 explanations here. They go far beyond where I am. And he said, would you help me organize uh, future uh, walks? So over the next 10 or 15 years, we, we organized walks every summer. And we had a wildflower person. We had a moss, moss and, and, and lichen person. We had a geologist and so on join our group as experts. And we, we had many as 50, 60 people on a Saturday morning out somewhere on Stony Lake in a really beautiful natural setting, exploring the natural world. And a lot of these people told us after a while that this, this meant more to them than many other aspects of their summer. Right. 
Yeah. And they treasured these walks. And that made a big impact on me, I'll tell you. And that is the, uh, this is something I recognize as well, based on the current work I'm doing, leading walks myself right. in Haida Gwaii. Right. And uh, it, it, not to be trivial or anything, but uh, it always kind of amazes me or, or gives, makes me think. People will come all this way to where I am. Mm -hmm. And I was just discussing this the other day, and I'll take them on a walk. So they've traveled a long way. Mm -hmm. I mean, they come from all over the world to come really? and go for a walk with me. Uh, not just me, but mm -hmm. to see Haida Gwaii. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then when we're finally on our walk, how many of those people will want to carry on a, a dialogue or a monologue while we're out there. Yes. So it quite often I have to try, and I try not to be rude, but I'll take, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take, I spend so much time alone in nature yeah, and yeah, I just yeah. kind of have a different way of seeing things similar to you and uh, how to perceive nature and to hear nature's voice, so to speak. And uh, so I have to um, actually educate people on how to quiet their minds right. in such a way that they can perceive their right. surroundings in a real-time environment. You see, those people are trying to adjust to uh, what I call, um, they, 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 they normally would ask questions and make comments and so forth to try and better understand. They're, they're simply seeking another way to understand. They haven't learned to quiet themselves because the curiosity aspect overwhelms them. And they are, they're going to talk about, the, we're going to have that dialogue. They're going to ask those questions. And they're, they're, they're not really ready yet, Fred, to, no. to so quiet what, the mind. That's, that's something you're going to have to teach them. I, so that's what I've, so I've been learning yep. uh, through doing. And uh, so I do have a, a process now and some procedures to prepare people. Right. And uh, largely what I, uh, just to make it short, I just try to help them engage with what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. The child's mind. It's that time of life when you're crawling in the grass and you're looking down into the blades of grass and you see an ant. And you're there with that yeah. ant and you're not thinking about anything. You're just crawling through the grass with that ant. So that's the, it's kind of like the child's mind. It's, you're uncluttered with all the uh, internal dialogue that you have as an adult. And so, yeah, so we actively have to prepare before we go out into the woods because some people are there and some aren't. And quite often, this is just uh, an example, a lot of people will, will be walking down the trail and they've come a long way, like I say, to get into that trail and now we're finally there. And people will be explaining to me an experience that their friend had right. in the Yukon. Oh, I have this friend who did this in the Yukon and we're walking down the trail and we're here now in this wild environment where I live and they're telling me about their friend's experience in the Yukon that they heard about. And so I'll have to stop the group yep. and literally gently yep. re-engage them yep. and we well, go into see, our that, breath. That's an awareness <laughs> thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you have to build in the awareness in your approach too. Um, that's true. You know, uh, So awareness is the first, you would make them aware that there are certain kinds of uh, dialogues that are appropriate to the setting. And one of the things we have to do, you might suggest, is to quiet our minds. And here's what, here's what that involves. And that takes the people a little bit of time to adjust to that thinking. Because normally people don't do that. Yeah. They want to they say, oh, I had a friend do this in, in the Yukon. I had, oh, when I was a child, this happened to me. That's simply trying to engage you in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a similar kind of experience. And, but you're going to have to modify 
how you approach that. Yeah, and that's so that's been my struggle uh, when, it, when it comes to trying to uh, help people perceive that's, that's a process you're going to have to learn to handle. Yeah, and I'm working on that one. Yeah, well, yeah, but the, uh, the, the objective has to be very clear for people in the group to make sure they understand what you're trying to do. Otherwise, it becomes a bit of a free-for-all. That's right. Yeah. Well, I had an interesting guy who was an apriest. Uh, uh, with it, bees. Yeah, with bees. And he, he asked my dad on the farm if he could set up an apiary in our edge of our sugar bush. And we had, you know, 96 acres of land there. We had sugar bush. We had clover and alfalfa and all sorts of other good stuff. Some basswood trees and so forth. And I said to him one day, you know, I was talking about him, uh, talking to this apiarist about bees in general, because as a little kid, I was fascinated with bees, and uh, and so I yeah, said, me too. <laughs> uh, and so I said to him, "How do you know where a bee tree is?" Because uh, my uncle showed me a bee tree, right, where they have their hives in, or they swarm they, it, in, in a hollow tree. Right. My uncle took me. Uncle Joe took me to a tree, that the the, the the tree was loaded with honey inside. Yeah, and uh, so he 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 said very simply, Ralph, you follow the bees. Right. Yeah. He says you go in, you just follow the bees, and he said they'll take you to their hive. <laughs> and I, you know, and I and I actually had the experience of that happening to me, and my dad, and I had this. We used to cut down trees for firewood for our stove and the farm. And I knew this beech tree had a hive in it. And my dad says, oh, we're going to cut the big beech tree down. Yes. And I kind of said, geez, Dad, that would be too bad. And, I, and he said, why? I said, well, there's a, a, a honey, uh, there's a honey, there's a honey hive up there. Ah, he said, don't worry about that. They'll find another place to live. Yeah. So we cut the tree down. Yeah. We got about 10 pounds of honey. Oh, honey wow. Out of there. <clears throat> wow. The whole big hollow was crammed with big chunks of Honeycomb. comb. Honey. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, yeah, that's it destroyed the whole damn thing. Well, when just recently I was out uh, on a walk with a, another friend of mine at a place called High Falls, which I know you know about, up near the Petroglyphs Provincial Park. And uh, it's an area where, where I used to spend a lot of time snow tracking and, and, mm -hmm. and, and other things in the forest there. And uh, we were just out there the other day and talk about following bees to a hive. Really? We came across a, a porcupine trail. And uh, so we started following this trail <laughs> of a porcupine. Of course, they don't move very fast. No, that's right. And so I wanted to catch up to this porcupine. And up around the High Falls area, there's a big jumble of rocks, and there's a lot of little mini caves and right, caverns right. and everything. He was in one of them. They were in them, but he. So we <laughs> we followed his trail, and you could see his belly uh, as the um, dragging along, dragging the porcupine quills yeah. along. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And he would go from oh, and there he just ate all the bark around a tree, and he came <laughs> down. He went over. Oh, he had a snack on this tree over here. And, uh, you know, and so as a result of following his trails, we located his active den site. Yeah, yeah. You can yeah. see the steam coming out yeah. and, and all the, the porcupine dung. Yeah. And last week we came across, do, by doing that, we came across two different porcupine dens with active dens with porcupines in them. 
There's one right across the pond here. One right across the pond here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you seen any coyotes or wolves around oh, here yes. lately? Oh, yes. Yeah. We have them on the property all the time. What have you seen lately or over the last uh, couple we of years? Haven't, we haven't seen, you haven't seen wolves for about two or three years. About four years ago, we had wolves here, big two big timber wolves, and there were yeah. a lot of deer. Right. And uh, that we had snow, and that winter we had at least four or five killed on the property here. Oh, yeah. And since then, I haven't seen a wolf. Right. We see coyotes and foxes. Right. But we haven't seen any wolves. But there are deer and bear and uh, coyotes and foxes and so forth on the property here. Yeah. And there's porcupine, as I say. There's one den over there, and there's two or three others on the property as well. Just for everyone uh, who's listening, it's, uh, I'm just looking out of Ralph's window right now, and it's, uh, it's just one of those uh, Charlie Brown snowflake days where, where the snowflakes are just thick in the air and just dropping down, and it's been snowing all night. Uh, he's got suet feeders up here. We've, we've been seeing jays and squirrels and chickadees abounding and nuthatches, and it's just a really great scene. Uh, that something I miss uh, living in the rainforest as I do now. Um, it's green all the time, and it's just so much fun to see the contrast and uh, I'm, later on today, I'm going to be going out looking for goshawk nests. And uh, it's going to be quite the deal going out in this environment and seeing if we can locate a nest. You find goshawks? Yeah, well, I've been working on goshawk program in Haida Gwaii. Didn't where, know that. Where the goshawks are, are actually threatened have you, with have extinction. You, have, you, have, you, have you studied the goshawk uh, love of the, in the sheiks uh, in Arabia? Well, when I was a kid... Uh, I, I was addicted to falconry and I, oh yeah, and I worked for a falconer. Did you really? Yes, I did. And so I learned how to trap and train hawks and, um, and I was, I'm, I'm a complete raptor head. In fact, when I first moved to Haida Gwaii, I was brought there to, uh, for my own imagination to hopefully, uh, observe the giant peels, peregrine falcons, which live there in, in some of the highest densities in the world in the seabird colonies. And I finally did, in fact, manage when I was working with seabirds, uh, come into contact with uh, some biologists, the top guys in peregrine research, one guy from the Patuxent Wildlife Refuge in Maryland, and another guy from Alberta. Anyways, long story is they invited me to um, guide them to the, the falconry, which was near our camp, and we lowered ourselves down into on the on the cliffside over the ocean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the falcons are all around. Yeah. And uh, we were taking blood samples because he did. A, he was doing a long-term study of, of the genetics and the population uh, right. dynamics of the of the birds there. I was so stoked to yeah. be with these guys and down yeah. there that yeah. I cut my own hand yeah. with my Swiss Army knife, and I blood bonded with a falcon up there in the cliff. Good lord! I know. <laughs> and then I laid in my tent that night, and I wondered. Uh, to myself, was that a good thing to do? <laughs> but oh, the, well, one of the guys, one of those guys, took a, a photograph and stuck it in his office. He was kind of blown away. And yeah, that's how weird I am, Ralph. Well, I don't think you're weird at all. I think, <laughs> I think you're a, one of those children of nature that I, yeah. I, I that I like. Anyway, uh, it's been a, a very nice time for, for us to be here, Fred. And yes, uh, the thing that I keep saying to people is that uh, actions speak louder than words in this world. Actions do speak louder than words and you're a really great example of that Ralph and, and I just really want to thank you once again for being my friend and welcoming me into your home and having this conversation. Right on. Take care Fred. Okay I will. You too Ralph. <laughs>